today's study with a, with a story uh, that, that has to do with the, the title of, of our, our study today called The Great Comeback. October 30th, 1974, Muhammad Ali and George Foreman fought a, a fight titled uh, The Rumble in the Jungle. How many of you guys remember that? Okay, all of you guys are young. I'm the oldest guy here. It was in Zaire, now the Republic of Congo. Uh, there was a famous chant that was uh, chanted by over 500,000 Zaireans. Is that what you say, Zaireans? Uh, Ali Bumbaya. Ali Bumbaya, right? Which is basically Ali, get him. Ali, kill him, right? Um, but it was a fight where George Foreman, uh, some of you are familiar with George Foreman. He just had a movie called Big George Foreman was a heavy favorite. Uh, he, he was the champion. He was younger. He was meaner. He was stronger. He was hungrier. But Ali, uh, you guys know, Ali employed a technique that he made famous called the rope-a-dope, right? Which is when a boxer leans on the ropes, allowing his opponent to just punch away. And that's what George Foreman did. He, he, he punched away and away and away until he seemingly couldn't punch no more. In the eighth round, Ali landed a blow that sent Foreman for the count. Muhammad Ali was behind in all the scorecards, but he won. Some would say that was a great comeback. But that's not the comeback I wanted to highlight. The comeback I wanted to share with you this morning is three years after the rumble in the jungle, Foreman, after a bad loss and a near-death experience in his dressing room, had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. A man, self-admitted, who was filled with pride, covetousness, a quest for power, lust, an uncontrollable bout with anger, was humbled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 2.4 reminds us that it's God's goodness that leads us to repentance. Amen? And so, from that point forward, Big George Foreman made a 180-degree turn. He quit boxing he became a, a good father, a good husband. Uh, for 10 years, he became a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, serving at-risk youth, giving all his time, his efforts, and his money for the kingdom of God. But after some financial uh, troubles, he made his return back to the ring. And on November 5, 1994, against a 26-year-old heavyweight, named Michael Moore, who was a champion, foreman out of shape, getting killed round after round by this younger contender, clocked Moore in the 10th round with the shot that sent him to the canvas. Moore couldn't recover in time, making foreman the oldest man to ever win the heavyweight title at 45 years old. Who's 45 and older here? <laughs> you know that's about, right? Big George Foreman made a great comeback, but it wasn't in the ring. His greatest comeback was repenting from his lifestyle and surrendering his life to the Lord. In an interview, he said, in the second time around, I had more than the first time. The, the, the big fist, the strength, the knockout punch that I was given was accompanied with faith in God. I knew that God would be with me as I trusted in him and I did the right thing. Today, I, I want to share with you a, another great comeback, not in the ring where there's a canvas and where there's lights, but in the ring of life. Psalm 51 is a, is a beloved psalm. I just want to let you know that we pushed back our second service till 3 o'clock, so this is going to be at about a three-hour service. I hope you're prepared, okay? 
seriously, man, I, I uh, was telling Mark that, you know, uh, when I first had the privilege of sharing, I had a hard time coming up with the study. Uh, how do I fill the hour, the 45 minutes? And now it's the opposite. Lord, I, it was, it's too much. And so forgive me. I asked Abel uh, to get his long staff so that if I take too long, he could just pull me out, okay? But this psalm uh, is a beloved psalm by many. Many in history have turned to it during their time of death. Uh, just to, to name a few, King Henry V requested that Psalm 51 be read to him on his deathbed. Um, William Carey, the, the great missionary, requested that it be the text of the sermon at his funeral. Uh, Psalm 51 has been described as the most precise and powerful demonstration of the reversal from guilt of sin to freedom of repentance. The great preacher and theologian J. Campbell Morgan described Psalm 51 like this. This great song, pulsating with the agony of a sin-stricken soul, helps us to understand the stupendous wonder of the everlasting mercy of our God. If you were to title this psalm, you could call it From Gutter to Glory. You can call it From Wasted to Washed. You can call it From Guilt to Rebuilt. And just in case you might not be familiar with the psalms, that's okay. A psalm is a, is a song right, or, or a poem. They were written a long time ago by, by David and, and other authors, other musicians. Uh, they were sang by the Israelites. And, and in studying them, uh, it helps us to express our, our feelings to God and learn more about his love for us. Uh, as, as pastors, whenever someone is going through something heavy in life, we always tell them, read the Psalms. Because they're so honest. They're so honest. We, we think that David was bipolar. Because sometimes he would start with, God, where are you? Have you guys ever been there? God, where are you? But he would always end with worship and with praise. The Psalms are beautiful. And Psalm 51 is an intimate look at David's comeback, the great comeback to God. It's a reminder that no matter what, the child of God can always come back to the Lord. Spurgeon said it's the sinner's guide. Psalm 51 is one of seven uh, penitential psalms. There's Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. And a penitential psalm contains expressions of guilt, remorse. It's an acknowledgement of personal transgression, pleas for mercy, and a desire for a renewal or for cleansing. What a topic, huh, to write a song about. <laughs> Definitely not a top 10 hit today. Uh, but David wrote a hit. David wrote a hit without a doubt, and, and hopefully uh, after the, the service we can play a song by two Christian brothers named Shane and Shane. How many of you know who Shane and Shane is? Gifted brothers in the Lord. They love the Lord, and you can tell that when they write these songs, it, it's, it's, it's the Lord really speaking to them. Well, they wrote a song called Psalm 51, Wisdom in the Secret Heart. And so if you think, well, what a strange topic to write a song about, check out that song. It's powerful, and it's a beautiful song. So with that said, let's dig in. If you have your Bible or, or your device, open it to Psalm 51, if you're not already there. I'm going to be reading for the New King James. Uh, so let's start with the prologue and verse 1. We all there? Let me pray one more time. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for your grace, your mercy, Lord. I pray that today, Father, that, Lord, uh, those things that we know about you would be cemented in our heart. And, Lord, those things that you want us to know, Lord that you would show us today through your word, Father. And I do pray that if there's anyone here that feels um, 
Lord, like they've drifted from you. Like there's no chance for them, Lord, that today, today's psalm would be a reminder, Lord, that you are a merciful and loving God. So we thank you, we praise you, and we ask this together in Jesus' name. It says in, in Psalm 1, and I'm going to read the prologue because it's very important. It says, to the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Right off the bat, huh? Right off the bat, you realize how personal this psalm is. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but I want to invite you to read Second Samuel, chapter 11, verses 2 through 27, and Second Samuel, chapter 12, verses 1 through 13 on your own, because when you do, you'll come across a crazy, I mean crazy, tragedy uh, of a story. I'm just going to give you a rundown. I'm going to begin with 2 Samuel 11, 1, which tells us, in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah, However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Warning, don't get caught slipping. Do what you've been called to do. David didn't. And though he was forgiven, you'll see that it cost him big time. So real quick, just a quick synopsis of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. It tells us that David, after an afternoon catnap, went on his roof of his palace. He was enjoying the view, and as he was... Looking over the kingdom, he caught sight of another view. Some of you guys know the story. He caught sight of a woman. And not just any woman, a beautiful woman. The New Living Translation says that this woman had unusual beauty. And not just any beautiful woman. I hope it's okay to say, this is first service. A naked, beautiful woman. Make a long story short, David declared, I want her. And as the saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. David had absolute power, so he thought. So not even the declaration that this woman was Bathsheba, the wife of one of his soldiers, Uriah, who was off to war where he should have been at as the king, stopped him. So he took her, slept with her, and he concealed the child with her cover his shame, he asked his general, Joab, send Uriah to me. And after some small talk, how's the weather up there? How's the war going? He suggested that he earn the night at home, hoping that after being away for so long, tired, he would be missing his wife and then pin the pregnancy on him. But that didn't work, huh? Uriah says, I won't do that while my fellow soldiers are suffering in battle. So then he thought of another solution. I call it the tequila plan, right? David fed him, got him drunk with the hopes that Uriah, being drunk, would lower his standards, would go home and be with his wife. Side note, this verse is declaring how alcohol gets someone to lower their standards. Be careful. Be careful with the liberty that you think you might have. Be careful. But you know the story, right? That didn't work with Uriah either. Uriah was more outstanding than even the great king David. 
So then David came up with what he thought was his best idea. And as far as its effectiveness, it probably was, but it turned out to be the worst idea of his life. Yesterday in our men's proverb and prayer, we read Proverbs 14, 12, which says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is a way of death. The next day, David sent Uriah back to the battle with a little note to Joab. The note said, send Uriah to the front of the line of the battle, in essence, sending Uriah on a suicide mission. So what happened? Uriah died. And after about a year going by, the plan to David seemed to have worked. He took Bathsheba as his own. He did the honorable thing, took care of the baby, a son, his son, and he thought that he was good. But the Lord had other thoughts, huh? The Lord didn't think so. And so he sent a prophet by the name of Nathan as a mouthpiece. Nathan told David a parable about a rich man who stole the poor man's lamb and barbecued it for a guest. And so after that story, we know the story, David was furious. He said, that man is going to die. And that's when Nathan told him, that man is you. That man is you. God told me to ask you why you would take someone else's wife and someone else's life. And that's when he realized, that's when David realized what he had done. With Nathan's prodding, David realized that his kingdom, his palace, couldn't shield him from the all-seeing eyes of God. He knew that he was naked before God. Nathan told him, God is going to spare your life, but your life and legacy will never be the same after this. He knew that he had just drifted far from God, And he declared the following, I have sinned against God. And that's what leads us to this psalm. In essence, this psalm is is part two of 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now we know why. David jumped right in the way he did. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Have mercy upon me. What is mercy? Mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. David knew that he deserved death. The sacrificial system that was in place covered non-essential sins, but it definitely didn't cover adultery. It didn't cover murder. David had no other choice but to fall on the mercy of God. He needed to be spared. And that's what he asked for. David knew God's mercy. As you know, David is the author of most of the Psalms. In Psalm 25, 6 through 7, it says, Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor by transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. It's vital, church, for us as believers to know the mercy of God. Because when you fail, and and you will fail, we will fail, the devil will try to use that failure to lure us away from God. Notice David's plea. It wasn't based on on his goodness. It wasn't based on the good things that he had done. It was based solely on the judge with a capital J, right? Oh God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Anytime we approach God, we should base it according to him and never according to us. David mentions mercy again, but he magnifies it now 
by citing the multitude of God's tender mercies. A definition for the Hebrew word multitude is more in number. And so, though your sins are like the hairs on your head, God's mercies are like the stars in the heavens. More in number. Amen? The word tender speaks of a woman's womb. And so, in other words, what that's saying is of a mother's compassion, her handling of her baby. Today, I have the privilege. It just worked out that way because I, I really wanted it to be Pastor Manny, and my son wanted it to be Pastor Manny. Don't tell him I said that. But we're going to dedicate my granddaughter, Elia, second service. You guys can come if you want. But anyways, when Elia was first born, man, we were so careful with her. You know, we would pick her up. I even felt weird, like, holding her. You know how it is, right? Especially for us guys, you know, we're like a newborn, and we were, like, just handling her with all care. She's seven months old. We just grab her now, and it's like nothing, right? <laughs> but the, 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 the point is that, that that's how God handles us, guys. The Scripture points to God's love in this way. In, in Isaiah 66, verse 13, speaking to Israel, it says, As one whom his mother comforts, So I, God, will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. That's how God handles us, as a mother with a newborn baby. Verse 2, it says, Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Blot out. It means wipe out. How many of you guys remember white out? Remember? Usually it's a word used in terms of God's judgment. In Genesis 6, 7 um, it's, it's the same word that God used to destroy. I'm going to destroy man from the face of the world. David is asking for the opposite here. He's saying, don't destroy me, God. Wipe out my transgressions. Transgressions, plural. Transgressions speak of our rebellion. Sin speaks of the mark we miss sometimes out of rebellion or even out of ignorance. And notice that, that, that David asks for God to wash him thoroughly. Give me a good old scrub behind the ears, Lord. My wife has this thing. I think we have a picture of it. It's called a loofah. How many of you guys are familiar with that? I thought it was a sponge the first time I saw it, and then I felt it, and it wasn't spongy. It looks like the chicharron that you buy at the meat market. <laughs> and it's that hard. It's that hard, too, but, but, it, but it cleans. It cleans, and that's what, in essence, David was asking for. Clean me. Clean me thoroughly. Clean me over and over and over again. Now, was David dirty physically? No, he was dirty spiritually. Sin soils the soul, guys. Adrian Rogers said, He bathed in his lavish marble tub. He slept on his silky sheets. He wore his royal robes, and yet he feels grimy. He feels filthy. He feels dirty. But do you know that that's a good sign? It's a good sign when we feel dirty. Because that's an indicator that God is in us, that God is in you, that God is in me. It's, it's a possible sign of salvation. That's how good of a positive sign that is, when we have conviction, when we have remorse. A believer versus an unbeliever. The child of God may lapse into sin, and he loathes it. The child of the devil leaps into sin, and he loves it. If you feel comfortable in your sin, something's wrong. Perhaps you aren't saved. And I say that with all my heart so that you can come to the Lord because the same road that leads us back as believers to God, the road of repentance is the same road that leads you to God. 
the road of repentance. That's the first steps in the great comeback, knowing your need, knowing his mercy, knowing your requests. The next step is acknowledging your sins, weighing their magnitude and seeking forgiveness. Read with me verses 3 and 9. It says, David, for I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Verse 8, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out, there's that word again, blot out all my iniquities. The next step in the road of repentance, in the great comeback, is acknowledging your transgressions. He says, I acknowledge my transgressions. David said, guilty as charged. Do you know that only then repentance will be effective? when you acknowledge your transgression. Unlike like the woman in Proverbs 30, 20, where it reads, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. Unlike Adam in the garden in Genesis 3, 12, where he says, the man said, the woman whom you gave me, Lord, she gave me the tree and ate. Unlike Aaron, when Moses went up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord, And as soon as he went up there, he led the people in idolatry. And then he said, it's the peeps. It's the peeps, Moses, that made me do it. Some of you guys might remember uh, Marion Barry. How many of you guys remember Marion Barry? He's a former mayor of Washington, D.C. Ooh, what a shock. He was caught on videotape using cocaine in a prostitute's room. Sound familiar? When he was asked about it, he said his cocaine and prostitute problem came about because he cared too deeply for too long about too many other people's needs. In my house, I would say, está loco. (laughs) The Christian who wants mercy should never pass guilt. Genuine repentance always accepts full responsibility for what he or she has done. David said, and my sin is always before me. I like how the New Living Translation captures that verse. It says, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Remember that, that, that show uh, growing up in the 80s called Soul Train? The Soul Train. For David, this was the soul dream. Sin was draining his soul. And that's what sin does, guys. That's what sin does. It drains us. It can't leave us comfortable. It can't give us peace as children of God. The children of God cannot have peace when they're in sin. If you can, you might want to rethink if you're a child of God. It had been about a year that David had basically concocted this this scheme. But I can guarantee you, based on this verse, David wasn't at peace. The reminder of what he did haunted him. I'm sure the devil, the accuser of the brethren, had a field day with him. At first he told them, you won't get caught. Followed by, you won't get away. And ending at, God will never forgive you for this one, David. And to some degree, it's partially true. The, the, the won't, you won't get away with it part. 
Because it says in Numbers 32, 23, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. The devil doesn't like to tell us about God's love and his mercy. He doesn't want to tell us about the comeback that we have optional to us as children of God. In Psalm 86, 15, it says, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. We sang that song that he, what, his anger doesn't last long, right? His anger is not like our anger where we hold a grudge. God is a merciful and forgiving God. Remember, if you uncover it, God covers it. But if we cover it, God uncovers it. You can't receive mercy for something you haven't owned. You got to pony up to what you did. Look what it says in verse 4. Against you and only you have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. That's the next step. We need to acknowledge who we sin against. Yes, when we sin, we hurt others. And yes, when we sin, we sin against others in some respect. David sinned against Bathsheba more than likely took advantage of her, more than likely. David sinned against his people as the king. David sinned against his body, like it says in 1 Corinthians. David sinned against the baby. But ultimately, who did he sin against? He sinned against the judge and jury, which is God. Declaring this truth only puts more weight on what he did to others, right? As an example, if I mistreat my wife, I'm mistreating whose daughter? God's daughter. And my wife is quick to remind me of that every single time. But so does God. He says that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. This is a declaration from David as he's asking for the mercy of God that whatever God decides, he's just. When we ask for mercy, we have to do it with a heart to know that God is just no matter what he decides. The other day, I don't know about you guys, but, but does it happen to you guys? You know, when you, when you hear a conversation and you don't want to snoop, but they just put you in a position to snoop? I was waiting for some food that I ordered, and to kill time, I figured I'm going to kill some calories, and I started walking around a park that was by the place that I was waiting for my order at. And as I was walking around the park, there was this couple, older couple, uh, with their windows open, and apparently they were arguing. And the lady said, you need to apologize. And the man started saying something, and then he says, okay, I apologize. Is that asking for mercy? I've done that. God doesn't want that from us. He wants to acknowledge who it is that we sinned against. When we say that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge, as David said that, he's declaring, look, your judgment it's righteous against me. I deserve judgment. That's why I'm falling at the mercy seat of God. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Behold. David uses behold uh, like him seeing this sin in light. I've never seen it like that before. Behold, there's a reason why the Bible gives us that word. It wants us to pay attention, to hone in on what it's trying to tell us. A sign of true repentance is a person aligning with God as opposed to a person trying to align God with them. 
I was brought forth in iniquity, he says, and in my sin my mother conceived me. In Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Well, that's the wicked, not me. No, we're all wicked. We need to understand that we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. As blood-bought believers, we need to trace our sinful tendencies to the very beginning of our existence. We are sinners not when we're born, but when we're conceived. It's called original sin, and we need to know that. That's what David is declaring. I was brought forth in iniquity. He's actually just thinking about what he's done, and he's like, man, I, I'm in trouble. I need God's mercy. The New Living Translation captures this, for I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Verse 6 says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts you will make me to know wisdom. Again, notice the word behold. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. David is making a comparison between 5 and 6. It's a contrast between the sinful reality of David's condition, which is what? I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. It wasn't like his mother was sinning and conceiving him. It was that he was a sinner from conception. But the contrast that he's trying to make, he says, but you don't want that from me. Behold, you desire the inward parts to be true. You want me to know wisdom. Wisdom is the knowledge to do the right thing, guys. And that can only happen when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. His spirit takes residence in us, and now your life starts to change. I had absolutely no wisdom. No, I lie to you. I had street wisdom. I learned from the streets how to do wrong, and I got better and better as I went on. But that wasn't the wisdom that God wanted for me. He wanted true wisdom. He wanted wisdom from above. David's declaration here is in agreement with God. And then he mentions truth. What is truth? Does it remind you of someone? Pontius Pilate, as the way, the truth, and the life was standing next to him. He says, what is, what is truth? You desire truth in the inward parts. Though the sin nature was deep within David from conception, God wanted to work deeply in him. And do you know that he wants to work deeply in you and in me? Notice David didn't cry out for a superficial brush over. He didn't just say, forgive me, God, and, and I'll go back to my business. He asked for something much deeper. Lord, work in my heart. Change me. Mold me. Perfect me. He knew that God saw deep in him. 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for a man looks at the outward appearance, but what does God look at? He looks at the heart, deep within the heart. David continues his, his acknowledgement. Look what he says in verse 7 through 9. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out, there's that word again, all my iniquities. Hyssop was a plant that was used in medicinal and sacrificial application. Pastor Chuck Smith says that when in Egypt, they were to sprinkle the blood of the lentils on the doorposts of the house. They used hyssop bush in the sprinkling of the blood. And so because it was a little bush, that was used to sprinkle the blood. He, David, saying, purge me with hyssop, would be referring to the blood of the sacrifice. He says, if you purge me with hyssop, Lord, I shall be clean. Purge is another way of saying, purify me. Wash me, he says, and I shall be whiter than snow. May, may we know this truth. May we never forget it. 
Perhaps David was thinking of the blood that he spilled with Uriah. But may we know that blood was spilled on our behalf by the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we, may we remember that. May we, may we take that personal. May we know, God, I, I, I am owned by you. I'm no longer a slave, but I am now your slave. Isaiah 118, it's a great verse. It says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. May we be convinced that the blood of Jesus that was spilled on Calvary makes us white as snow. I like what Hebrews 9 tells us. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, which is in essence what David was referring to, the sprinkling, the unclean sanctifies, the purifying of the flesh. He says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Notice what it was for, to serve the living God. In verse 6, it says, Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Make me to hear joy and gladness. In Psalm 30, verse 11, it says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. I think it's important now to talk about the fact that while God will, will, will give us mercy if we ask for it, as children of God, that the repercussions of sin are still real. Earlier, David said, my sin is always before me in verse 3. He's, he's asking here now for, for joy, for, for, for gladness, a byproduct of knowing Jesus. So that what? So that his broken bones, which is a metaphor, could rejoice. Those broken bones, guys, can still be painful long after they, they're mended. But, but in Jesus, we can still experience joy and gladness. Uh, John mentioned that, that Mark and I have been asked to share our testimonies with some of the young adults. And in sharing my testimony, I, I always want to be careful that I don't magnify those things that have happened in my life, that I don't rem- reminisce of those things that have happened in my life, but that I tell them, that the greatest testimony is no testimony. In other words, that if I'm talking to someone young, I want to tell them if you establish a relationship with Jesus today, early on in life, God will keep you from the sin that has long-lasting repercussions, that has long-lasting circumstances. Amen? Some of us can relate to that. We're still paying for the sins of yesterday. We're still dealing with the sins that we committed. I know I am. David's child died a week after Nathan confronted him. His family was never the same after the sin he had committed. Because sin never left his house, he lost all the authority that he had with his children. He was forgiven. God had given him mercy. Thank God for that. But his life was never the same. May we remember that. May may we remember that the greatest testimony is no testimony. Amen? Amen? I love the way uh, Adrian Rogers uh, puts it. He says, sin sickens the body. What David was saying was, God, you have me under extreme pressure. It's almost as if God has David in his hand and God is just squeezing and squeezing the life out of David. Sometimes people think, well, if we sin, God's just going to cast us off. Oh, no. He squeezes 
and squeezes and squeezes. Why? Because he loves us. He's not going to let us go. He loves us. I love the way the New Living Translation captures this verse. It says, Oh, give me back my joy. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Again, Adrian Rogers says, Bound to sin, bound to suffer. Hide your face, David says, from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. As this how David is saying, Stop looking at me, God. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes when my kids do something bad, I look at them side eyed. And I kind of shake my head like, you know, to rub it in. No, I'm just kidding. Just to show them how much their actions affect me. Just to, to, to cause something in them to not want to do it again. It, it, it bothers them because they know that their father is disappointed. How much should it bother us to know that our father, though he loves us, is disappointed with some of our actions? Because not only does God see us, but we also see him. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west... So far, he's removed our transgressions from us. Jesus doesn't side-eyes us. He's not like me. He says, from east to west, so far I've removed your transgression for you. East to west goes on forever. David prays, blot out all my iniquities. And he means it because he knows God's mercy. In the first part, David was praying for mercy. Now David is praying for restoration. And that is what the child of God should want, restoration from God. Not just mercy, not just you know, fire, you know, insurance from hell, but to be reconnected with God, to, to gain back that which the child of God has lost. Look what verse 10 and 13 say, which is beautiful. He says, create in me a clean heart. That should be a daily prayer for us as Christians. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, verse 11 says, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. How many of you have been there? Where, where in, your, in your life, in your walk with the Lord, because of sin, you've gone through dry seasons. You, 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 you felt the, the, the removal of the joy and the gladness that you once had with the Lord. I have. He's saying, man, create in me a clean heart. He says, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners shall be converted to you. So let's look at creating me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me. Do you guys know that, that the word create in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew word is the word bara, which means to shape, to fashion, to bring into existence out of nothing? Only God can create something out of nothing, Right? This is the same word used in Genesis when God created the world. So think about that. What is David asking for? One translation, which is more of a commentary, has this verse for verse 10. God, make a fresh start in me. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. Do you guys understand what David is asking for here? He's asking for a reborn moment. He's asking for a, for a new heart. He's asking for God to take his old heart, yank it out, and put a new heart, a clean heart, oh God, in him. I have a friend. You guys can remember, keep him in prayer. His name is Mario. My friend's heart is only operating at 20%. He needs a new heart. His won't do. He needs another one. Please pray for him. But my, my prayer is that not only he gets a, a new heart, but he gets a new spiritual heart. He's been coming to church. He's going to be here second service, Lord willing. But that should be our heart. 
That should be our prayer daily. He says, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I love that word, steadfast. That's probably my favorite word in the Bible, steadfast. First Corinthians, right? Steadfast. Do you know that the King James Bible uses right? A right spirit for steadfast? That's all steadfast means, right? David Gusick says, along with a new and clean heart, David needed a steadfast spirit, the right spirit, to continue in the way of godliness, this expressed Humble reliance upon the Lord is a bright product of our obedience to the Holy Spirit, His leading in your life. By God's grace, and now looking back, we know that God answered David's prayer, right? Because he's not remembered by his unclean heart, but by being a man after God's own heart. There might be some Davids here. There might be some men that committed adultery. There might be some sisters that committed adultery. There might be some of you who committed murder. Know that there's no sin that's too far from God drawing you back to him. In Christ, we can have the same thing that David experienced here. In Christ, we have already. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. A new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Ephesians 2.10 says that we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Verse 11 says, Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. The ESV study Bible says the goal of repentance is not self-abasement, which is to put ourselves down, it's for the renewal of joy and gladness once experienced in Christ. David knows that without God's Spirit leading him, he had stands no chance in experiencing that joy and that gladness again. Think of Samson, who thought that his power lay in his hair, but the Holy Spirit was removed from him, and he lost his power. Think of King Saul, and I think David was thinking of King Saul, who the Holy Spirit was taken away. And he lived his life from that point forward in depression, in sickness, in crying out for these, 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 these spiritualists, these witches that he wasn't supposed to go to because he was yearning for that gladness and that joy that he had once experienced when the Holy Spirit was inside of him. That's why he's asking here in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Adrian Rogers says, notice that he's not asking to have his salvation restored. You can be saved and be miserable. The most miserable man on earth is not an unsaved man. The most miserable man on earth is a saved man out of fellowship with God. Amen. That's Bible truth. I want you to know that if you have your fellowship cut off with God because of sin, it's the most miserable state to be. Don't, don't believe the lie that, that in the world you can't get joy. That's a lie. Some of us sinned. Some of us were in the world. No, wait. All of us were in the world. And we had fun. There was a temporary joy. It just wasn't a fulfilling joy. It wasn't the same joy. So don't believe the lie that you can't get joy in sin. You can. But, man, it's got a hook underneath it. And it's not going to fulfill you. It's... it's, 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 it's it's going to come and it's going to bite you. The, the, the most miserable man on earth is not the unbeliever. It's the man who has no fellowship with God because of sin. That's true. I've been there. Some of you have been there. 
He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. He, he, he went on to say, Adrian Rogers, when God saves you, God doesn't fix you where you can't sin anymore. He just fixes you where you can't sin and enjoy it any longer. Happiness is dependent on your circumstances. Joy comes from your stance in Christ. It's your inner stance that counts. Do you know that, that only sin can cut you off from your fellowship with God and therefore from your joy and from your gladness? Not, not your circumstances, not a disobedient child can take your joy away. Not, not a, an unfaithful spouse can take your joy away. Not a financial downturn can take your joy away. Not a global pandemic can take your joy away. Not an ungodly government can take your joy away. Only our sin can take our joy and gladness away. It's not joy that removes the pain. It's joy that helps you endure the pain. The joy of the Lord is my strength, Nehemiah said. How do we do that? I'm a sinner, Lord. I sin every single day. Hold on to him with all your might. Abide in him, which just simply means obey him, walk with him, trust him. But how do I do that? Pray and ask God for help. Look what it says, and uphold me by your generous spirit. I think we have a picture here. I love this artist's rendition. You guys have seen this before, right? Do you guys see that? It's Jesus Christ holding this man. He's got a hammer. He's got a nail there. It's the same man that put him on the cross, but Jesus Christ is holding him up. That's how we get through it. We ask the Lord to uphold us by his generous spirit. Notice David calls on God to uphold him by his generosity. Verses 13 and 17, then I will teach. That's a hinge word, then. Then I will teach your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise, for you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a contrite, a broken and a contrite heart. He says, these, O God, you will not despise. Again, then is a hinge word. After David secures God's forgiveness, he then sets out to serve him. That should be the natural course. It's our reasonable duty after we experience the mercy and the grace of God in our lives. Verse 13 says, I will teach you transgressions your way and convert sinners, but first then restore to me the joy of my salvation. Give me gladness. Give me joy. How can you teach if you haven't experienced it yourself? As Christians, we should be the beggars pointing other beggars to where the bread is. That's it. Because we've tasted the bread. We've experienced the bread. When Jesus promised to restore Peter, what did he tell him to do afterwards? Tend to my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. So two things that we need to remember. It's not our duty to seek the conversion of others until we're converted ourselves. And number two, know that no sin is so bad and horrible against the Almighty that he could never again use you. David murdered. He committed adultery. And yet God used him mightily even after that. In verse 14, he talks about bloodshed. Perhaps David is thinking of Uriah. 
In verse 14, again, he says, the God of my salvation, as if he's looking ahead at Jesus, the God of my salvation. This is in the Old Testament, y'all. The God of my salvation. He says in verse 15, and my mouth shall sing aloud of your righteousness. He says, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. David knows that one must worship God in spirit and in truth. He doesn't want to play the hypocrite and sing. He doesn't want it just to be mouth service. You know, it's been said that one of the greatest indicators of something being wrong in a believer's life is that they stop worshiping. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes, you know, when I'm, I'm, when I'm going through it, man, I've, 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 I've said something to my wife. I, I've, I've blown it with my kids. And then I come in for a Sunday and, and I worship. Sometimes I have a hard time worshiping. Sometimes I have a hard time declaring those words because I feel so dirty. I feel like such a hypocrite. But you know that it's just one step. It's just forgive me, God. Lord, I fall at your mercy. And then we can sing. And then we can shout his name. And we should. We're going to have one more last closing song. You guys better sing loud. (laughs) As you sing of his mercy, as you sing of his love. Verse 16 says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices you want, God, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. That's the key to Psalm 51. That's the key to repentance. God doesn't want us to be all religious. He doesn't want us to recite the whole Bible. He doesn't want us to declare, though it's a good thing, how long we pray for. He wants us to pray. He wants us to read the Bible, but he wants us to do it in sincerity. He wants us to give, but he wants us to give it behind closed doors with only him where only he could see. He wants it to be real. The other day, I went outside of my house, and the smell of smoked meat hit me like a ton of bricks. And if there's any guys, maybe some gals in here, who love smoked meat, you know that that smelled like perfume to my nose, right? And so what did I do? I walked to the corner, and the smell still permeated the air. And so then I got in my car, and I drove to the other block, and the smell was still there. I went a few blocks after that, and guess what happened? The smell was still there. Imagine the smell of sacrifice David could muster up. He was a king. He had all the cattle. But he knew that it wasn't about religion with God. He wanted the real thing. He wants us. Anything else is a waste of time. Psalm 50, verse 10 through 12, God God says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. And by the way, they believe that those that placed the Bible put Psalm 51 behind Psalm, or in front of Psalm 50 because of this very thing. It says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. All the birds are mine. If I was hungry, you think I would tell you? It's not of importance to God. That's, that's a sign. That's a matter of obedience. It's, 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 a, it's a picture of where our heart is. God wants the real thing. He wants us to come with broken hearts, with a contrite spirit. The sacrifices of God are broken and contrite spirit. That's true repentance, church. That God won't turn away. Remember, he sees what? He sees a heart. He sees a heart. Contrite means to crush, to break in pieces, to smash, to crush down. I love that hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. 
Verse 18 and 19, Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls in your altar. David in sin had torn down and now in repentance and restoration prays for a building up. We're not really sure why this was in. Some people think that it was added by some scribes because it really doesn't have a lot to do with you know, the whole theme of the psalm. But maybe David was just thinking of his kingdom. Maybe David was saying, God, if you're in charge, if you restore me, if you give me joy, if by your spirit you lead me, man, things are going to be good in Zion. Things are going to be good in Jerusalem. Lord, you take the wheel. Lord, you drive. Then and only then will you be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. Then and only then will you be pleased with the burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings and the offerings of bulls at the altar. I want to close with just a reminder of of the greatest comeback that we have as children of God to know that we can come back to the Lord. You know, as Christians, we've been positionally saved. Do you know what that means? It means that at the cross, we were saved forever. Right? As we continue abiding in Christ. It's my favorite, uh, that's my brother Miguel's favorite word, abiding in Christ. He says that's a Calvary Chapel word. Well, it's not as a Bible word, but I know what he means. But we also have the gift of coming to that, that fountain of coming to that water where we can daily be cleansed. We, we tell people to make sure to keep short accounts with God. What does that mean? Well, you know, nowadays we live in a credit system world where they give you deferred payment and you can pay in 25 years at a 500% interest rate, right? That's not how we should do it with God. We need to pay right away. What's our payment? A broken spirit, a contrite heart, an admittance of guilt, a need for mercy, the knowledge of who it is that we're sinning against, a desire to be cleansed so that we can have joy and gladness again, a heart to serve him when we have that joy and gladness. We have that privilege of the great comeback, the same Come back that, that George Foreman had. We can come to the Lord. We can say, I'm sorry. I've blown it. Forgive me. The sin is always before me. Blot it out, Lord. Cleanse me. Help me. Give me a fresh start. Create in me a Genesis week out of the madness of my life, Lord. Now, again, I don't want you guys to think that this gives us permission to sin because sin will bring what? repercussions, right? But if you have sinned, if you have blown it, I want you to know that there's a road, it's called the road to repentance that is available for you and for me as children of God. And, and, and just in case, as, as we ask Jimmy and Tina to come back, if there's anyone here who maybe has never, has never repented of their sins, Maybe they, they say, you know, well, I go to church. My, 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 my dad and my mom, my grandma, they were believers. Well, 
God doesn't have grandchildren. He just has children. The first step of coming to a relationship with God is, is, is repentance. From that point forward, you get the gift of repentance, but you first need to repent the first time. And so if there's anyone here, I just want to invite you, man, cry out to God. He's the God of mercy. He's the God of love. His, his anger is not forever. Uh, he doesn't look side at you. He loves you.